Bibles. Matthew 26. Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter. And we're going to be taking a look at verses 57 to 67. No, 68. I knew that didn't sound right. 57 to 68. Matthew 26. Those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look. Now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and that word may bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. brothers and sisters in Christ. When my oldest son, Colin, was little, I remember we used to go through the children's catechism questions at night. And I will never forget this incident. It was in Iowa, of all places. Yeah, I remember. And I was tucking him into bed, and he said, Dad, if Jesus didn't do anything wrong, then why do you have to die on the cross? And I'll never forget that me being like, Finally, the moment of truth. You talk about a, a, a God-given, teachable opportunity. Um, so I was able to tell him, son, that's the whole point. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for ours. That had to happen. And as we've seen in chapters 26 so far in our study of Matthew's gospel, every step of the way Jesus was in complete control of the events surrounding his betrayal, his abandonment, and his arrest. At any given moment, he could have defended himself and confounded his enemies. No problem. 
But what we've also seen again and again, this is what I'm getting to, is his absolute surrender to his Father's will. Even though he clearly knew it would mean unjust humiliation, unjust suffering, and pain. Now, one of the rich benefits of meditating on these actual details of our Lord's suffering for our sakes is gaining an understanding of what this seemingly cliche statement actually means. I'm sure you've heard it before. And and cliches do kind of bother me. But in this case, I think we find surprisingly in some ways, because it is a cliche, it holds true. And it's this. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was His love for you and for me. You know, sometimes us Christians, we say some sappy things. But in this case, this is 100% gospel truth. Because the point is, Jesus could have said, okay, no more. At any point. He could have gotten himself off that cross and said, not doing it. But he did. And in case uh, there are some really strict brothers who uh, may, say, may try to correct me and say, no, he did it for the glory of God. And I want to say, stop making friends enemies. In other words, it is to the glory of God that he did it out of love for you and me as well. The Apostle Paul said, the life I live in the body now I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and who gave himself for me. Ouch. Getting into it. Martin Luther once said, Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. It's not just the historical details. Jesus died on a cross, although that's true and it's important to know. It's that he died on the cross, listen, for me. That makes the difference. An application. So we have to, as we look at this text, I bring this up because I want you to view it from, those, from that perspective, with those eyes. I can't help it when I look at these verses. I want to cry out and say, Why, Lord? Why are you putting up with this embarrassing kangaroo court? You're the high king of heaven and you're putting up with such humiliation and agony at the hands of these conniving, wicked, weak men. And then I remember, he did it for me. He kept his mouth shut. He quietly took the medicine that I was supposed to take, the punishment, the shame, the disgrace that my sins, my disobedience, my selfishness, my rebellion deserved. And then you know what I do by the grace of God? I bow down and and I worship Him. And I adore Him. And I realize that as I go to preach a text like this, I am in the Holy of Holies. I'm not worthy to preach this text. And, And it's so far beyond me that my words are sometimes so weak. What I want you to do this morning, I know folks in my own life, they couldn't go see the passion of the Christ. Because, uh, and, and I understand completely, they couldn't look at it for too long. The friends I did go to see that movie with were weeping so out of, con- I don't know if I've ever heard anybody cry like that. And the temptation is to look away because I just, we can't take it anymore, right? 
And what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is don't look away. Look at what our Lord went through. Take it in. Digest it for the good of your soul. And I don't say it in this way. You know, people do this for right or for wrong. We, this is for a discussion for another day. But people are kind of like, don't look away. You need to see this. Kind of a shameful thing. You need to see what he went through for you. You know? That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about you need to see it. So you'll have a sobering reminder of how expensive grace is. How much it costs. That there's nothing cheap about genuine, the genuine grace of God in Christ that was shown to lost sinners. And you need to see this so that you will appreciate more and more how much your God went, the lengths that God went to, to make you his friend. That's all. So you'll have a real heart of gratitude. As you go and leave this place this morning, I hope, with in t- all intentions to serve him this week. Okay? A little bit of a long intro, but don't fear. The rest of it will be uh, proportionate. So as we look at the details this morning, let's look at it in light of the clear fact of history and of Scripture. And here's what we're going to see. That Jesus submitted himself willingly to unjust suffering and punishment. Listen for the suffering and punishment we justly deserved. All right, I'm going to repeat that because it's important. Jesus submitted himself willingly to unjust suffering and punishment for the suffering and punishment we justly deserved. And three things I want you to see. And by the way, the name of this sermon is my first point. The silence of the land. I just, I couldn't help myself. All right, so we're going to look at that. The silence of the land the statement of the Lamb, and the submission of the Lamb. That's what we're going to see here. Let's take a look at the first one, the silence of the Lamb. And that's really the first thing that jumped right out at me um, as I began to study this text a few weeks back. And that is that the fact that the religious leaders were all gathered together, the text says, at Caiaphas the high priest's house. In other words, they they gathered together for this uh, impromptu trial. And as we're going to see, it really was... um, a real kangaroo court, a real thrown together and in many ways illegal trial. And Matthew, because Matthew tells us, look at the details, why they assembled, right? When you have a court case, it's supposed to be fair, right? Unbiased. We're supposed to give opportunity for the defendant to plead his case. But look at verse 59. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Look, think about it. What kind of trial is this? First of all, it's held at night. That's really not ordinary in any culture. You hold a trial late at night. It's in a rush. And secondly, the agenda is already up front. They want to condemn the defendant and put him to death. That's the purpose of the trial. It's not to determine the truth. It's not to give a fair hearing. It's we want to kill him. And on top of this, they knew they had nothing on Jesus. So it says in the text, they tried to find false witnesses. Listen, it's not just that they couldn't find witnesses. That's really hard as it is. 
but they couldn't even find false witnesses. And in Mark's gospel, it says because the people that came forward were all contradicting themselves. They had nothing. Finally, a few came forward with a butchered version of something that Jesus had said earlier in his ministry. Look at verse 61. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Listen, you may remember in John's gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, this is what Jesus actually said. He said, it was in the context of them them asking Jesus, the religious leaders, give us a sign. And Jesus said this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it, raise it up. So notice, he doesn't say, I'll destroy the temple. Is that what he says? No, he says, basically, you destroy it, and I'll raise it. And it tells us in the text, he wasn't talking about brick and mortar. He was talking about the temple of his body. He was basically saying, you want a sign? It's going to be my death and resurrection. I'm going to come back to life. You want that sign? I'm going to give it to you. Well, these witnesses come forward. They twist his saying. And unfortunately, or fortunately in, for us in this sense, um, this was the charge. This is all that Caiaphas needed to get this going in the right direction for him. This twisted quote. So the charge that Jesus was facing at this point was thre- threatening to desecrate God's holy temple. So the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And then verse 63, and this is what I'm going to hang on for the first thing I want to show you. But Jesus remained silent. The striking thing in our text here is what we could easily call the silence of Jesus. Nothing. He wasn't silent. We need to see something. He wasn't silent because he couldn't find a strong enough argument to use to refute the two false witnesses. I just did that. And I'm, no, I'm not that good at all. He wasn't silent because he felt like, ah, what's it worth? It's going to fall on deaf ears anyway. You ever have those? I, I got to admit, I use that tactic. You know, when somebody gives me a convoluted argument, I'm like, you know what? They don't even have ears to hear. I'm just, I'm tired. I ain't saying nothing. It's not what Jesus is doing here. No. And he also didn't remain silent to annoy him. You know, sometimes people in an argument will just remain silent because they're kind of like, hmm, I'm going to get you. I'm going to say nothing. It's not what Jesus is doing here. So then what is he doing? He remained silent because he knew it was his father's will for him to submit to this unjust court so that he might deliver you and me from our just deserts. Now, later on in front of Pilate, he's going to do the same thing. Pilate's going to say, aren't you going to say anything? Right? And later on, we're going to see, he says nothing. Jesus was fulfilling these words in Isaiah 53, 7. Listen, talked about the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures. His whole life was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Every aspect birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, coming back again. 
That's why we need to keep that verse in the song we sang a little couple minutes ago. He never said a mumbling word. For me. Don't forget that. For me. One day when I was lost, he died on the cross. Never said a mumbling word. Now, I once heard a preacher, let me just say this, and then we'll go right to the next thing. I once heard a preacher, um, he was um, talking about the seven last words of Christ on the cross, and he said, see, that song is wrong. He said a mumbling word. And I just shook my head because he totally misunderstood. First of all, the scripture says he was silent. Who am I going to listen to? The preacher or the scripture? That's number one. The scripture said in Isaiah, it says it in Matthew, and later on he says it in Peter. He did not respond. What the Bible's talking about is not that Jesus didn't verbally say anything at all during his suffering. Who gets quiet? But what it's talking about is he did not say a word in self-defense. You see the difference? It's very specific. Didn't defend himself. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that we saw the silence of the Lamb, but now we're going to see the statement of the Lamb. Jesus does say something, but it's not in defense. That's the next thing, the statement of the Lamb. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want you to see this because we can miss this. We're not normally in a judicial setting, at least those of us in this room. But what Caiaphas is doing at this point is he's swearing Jesus in officially. I implore you by the living God. In other words, by oath. You are now under oath, Jesus. You know when people say, I swear to tell the truth, none but the truth, so help me God. Caiaphas is saying, let's do it, Jesus. Are you or are you not? Now you got to understand what Jesus is about to say is not a defense. Our Lord can't lie. He only tells the truth. And so you got to love what Jesus says. Verse 64. Yes, it is as you say. And in the Greek, I want you, you can miss this in the English. In the Greek, he's saying this. You said it. Let me put it in Santo Living Translation. Mm Mm-hmm. You right. And I think what really ticked Caiaphas off is that he's the one who said it. Jesus didn't even have to say it. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus is going to guarantee his crucifixion with this next statement. He says, but I say to all of you, everybody here, not just this guy, all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Jesus was serving them all notice. This day might be yours. (laughs) Enjoy it. I may be delivered into your hands to face your false accusations and unjust judgment today, but in the future, the shoe will be on the other foot. And you will have to give an account Not to just God in general, to me personally. And it won't be no kangaroo court. It won't be no setup. It'll be just. My angels will be there. My father will be there. And your secrets will be laid bare. And you will have to respond to the Lamb of God. 
Jesus was basically saying, just want to let you know. This is clearly a reference to Daniel chapter 7, the vision that Daniel saw. And this is what really set Caiaphas off because he knew exactly who Jesus was proclaiming to be. Real quick, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In Daniel's vision, he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite designation for himself, by the way. Like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's the Father. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. This is what we're aiming for here at New City, by the way. Getting a little taste of that. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Far from defending himself. Jesus gave them exactly what they wanted, a real charge to sink their teeth into. And they said, he said, you heard it, blasphemy. Listen, verse 65. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. One commentator captures it perfectly when he says this. The members of the Sanhedrin, pass judgment on the one who will someday pass judgment on them. Chilling. The silence of the Lamb, the statement of the Lamb, and last of all, the submission of the Lamb. Verse 66, I want to repeat it again. What do you think, he says, as Caiaphas said, and the rest of the court says he's worthy of death. Then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? It's a good question for all of us to ask. What does Jesus deserve? What's he worthy of? The answer they gave on that day was insidious. They said he's worthy of death. The irony is so thick here. Here they are. They are supposed to be the religious leaders leading people in the way of God, the spiritual shepherds of Israel. They broke every law in the book to do this, to condemn Jesus. And here's Jesus who has done nothing wrong, even up to this point, acted perfect. And yet they have the gall to say he's worthy of death. You see this? Matthew wants you to see it. He's being condemned for telling the truth. He was dead on right. He is the son of man. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. Let me draw your attention to something very important this morning. Because this is where I'm going to start preaching. You thought I was preaching before, didn't you? I was warming up for this part. Because this is the part that blessed my soul deeply. You ever been cut to the heart? by a particular sin in your life? Maybe something you've done or left undone or something that still haunts you to this day. And you know in your heart what you've done deserves death. And you're ashamed to even say it out loud. Maybe, there, maybe whether you're married or maybe you have another close confidant, a parent, or you can't even tell them 
because you're so embarrassed. And you can't shake the guilt no matter how many times you seem to confess it, no matter how much you endeavor to turn from it, and even make amends as far as humanly possible, there's this cloud over you. You ever have that? Anybody? Well, then this text is God's word to you that you desperately need. Listen to me. Listen to the text, not me. They spit in his face. There's nothing more repugnant, disgusting, or contemptuous than to be spat upon. Did you know that? I don't know if anybody in this room, I don't, I don't know if I have been or not. I would think that if I'd been spit in the face, I'd remember it. Right? Because there's no worse insult. They punched him with closed fists. They slapped him with open hands. They mocked him by asking him to demonstrate um, his prophethood, as it were, his prophetic office, by saying, it tells us in other gospels, they blindfolded him. That's the point. They said, who hit you? Tell us. Here's why, what I'm telling you. Don't take your, turn your eyes away. Take a good look at the scene, at the humiliation, the shame, and the disgrace that Jesus bore. Because if you put your trust in Him, if you've turned from your sin and put your faith in Him, all of the shame, all of the dis- dis- disgrace, all the humiliation your sin deserves was paid in full by our Lord Jesus Christ on that day. Think about that. Because if he wasn't doing it for his own sake, then guess what? He was doing it in your place. He took your embarrassment. You realize that? He took your shame. He took your disgrace. We could come here this morning unashamedly and boldly come to the throne of grace and sing happy songs instead of coming here with our heads bowed low in embarrassment because Jesus was embarrassed. So why I'm saying this is, brothers and sisters, leave it here. You don't have to bring it out of this room ever again. That shame, that disgrace, that embarrassment. If you've turned from it and you've trusted in Christ, it's gone. By faith, believe it. He didn't do this for nothing. If you carry it around, you're saying he did it for nothing. Or it wasn't enough. I don't know about you, but I don't want to say that. See, God may give salvation freely as a gift of his unmerited favor, but that doesn't mean salvation was free. You get that? When people say, oh, then it was cheap grace. No, it isn't, because it cost our Lord everything. His dignity. His life. And when we talk about the cross, I want you to understand something that I sometimes missed. The cross represents not only that exact moment that Jesus physically died. Do you know this? The cross represents all of his suffering and shame. You know that, right? All of his humility. Everything he did in our place in terms of taking what we deserve. You know that song, Here I Am to Worship? I'll never know 
how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. We could stare at this passage for 24 hours and still not get the depth of what it cost Jesus to do this. One more important point I want to make of application. Then we'll close for this morning. I want you to feed on it the rest of the week. In terms of justification, we see the benefits of Christ's passion here for us. But there's another application that the apostle Peter draws later on in his life after Jesus rose from the dead. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to read it and make a quick point from it. I already preached on it, so if you ever want to look it up online, you can. It's in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 20 to 25. I'm just going to read it and make the point, and then let's pray. Peter says this, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Now listen, Peter quotes, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He's our high priest. Because of him, our sins are forgiven. But he is also our example to emulate. And what Peter is talking about, he's using this, these passages, like the one we're preaching on from Matthew's Gospel and, uh, and also in Isaiah. He's using these passages to encourage the early Christians, and now us, to suffer unjust suffering the way that Jesus did. Well, now I'm meddling, ain't I? In other words, there are times brothers and sisters, that when it comes to the authorities over us, we don't appreciate, especially when they're not doing things the right way. Can I get an amen? And what Peter is saying, hey, it's better to suffer unjustly than to suffer for doing something wrong. Because what do you get at it if you're suffering because you did something bad? You're just getting what you deserve. Peter says, no. He says, you were called to this kind of a life, a life that even when you suffer unjustly, you do not retaliate, but you entrust yourself to the Father, the one who judges justly. Because you know in the end, he's going to make things right. And I'll tell you how this is hard. Just yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I'm driving down the street and an unmarked police guy car cuts me off and then like stops and wants to turn. And as I'm going to go around him, it kind of looked, I didn't know if he was like going to come after me. And in my heart, I'm like, come after me. I want you to come after me because I'm going to report you. I started thinking like all these things. I'm going to, you know what? I have a good, clean record. I'm a pastor. I'm going to go to, you know, and, and then all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, where in the world did that come from? And I thought about it. You know, the Lord allowed this so I could give it as an illustration. But that, that's how we roll, isn't it? Hell's got to get paid. Even for something stupid like that. And what God is telling us, no, 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 no. Hell was paid by Jesus. 
You don't need to vindicate yourself. You don't need to go and fight. God's got this. You stay quiet. You stay trustful. He bore himself he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And notice he bore the penalty of our sins so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Seeing the humiliation, the suffering, the pain, the shame that Jesus was subjected to for our sake should make us hate our sin more and more and love him and his righteousness more and more. Amen? The silence of the Lamb. Now go proclaim it. Don't be silent. Go tell people about it. And by his grace, live it out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the silence of Jesus. We thank you that he entrusted himself to you, the one who judges justly, even though the laws of man and the world of men were out to get him and eventually took his life. We thank you that that was all part of your plan, though, because you are the sovereign God of the universe. And we thank you for your love. We thank you, Jesus, that because of your love, you stayed the course so we could be saved eternally and we could have a new life here until you call us home. So, Lord, enable us by your grace not to just be hearers of this message this morning, but to leave our sin paid for with you. No longer walk in shame. And when even the devil brings it up, we point that it was paid in full by Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.